Hi, Janina. Hi, Emma. It's been a while. It's been a long, long while. It's been a long time. Shouldn't have left you without a dope beat to step to. Oh, thanks. Uh, yeah. Uh, but we're back now. We are, and we're sorry, but, you know, sometimes stuff gets in the way, and we both had a lot of work on, and then you had a wedding, and I had COVID. Yeah. And... It's been an event for a few months. I hope maybe it's reassuring that this is not the only ball that I have dropped over the last six months. (laughs) (laughs) It's not been six months. It's been, like, three. Well, okay. It feels like it's been six months. (laughs) (laughs) But, But we're back now. Um, we are and it's like they say the absence makes the heart grow fonder um yeah so i'm sure that everybody feels very fondly about us <laughs> exactly we just we just wandered away for a bit to make people appreciate us more yeah it's like a nice surprise when we're back like if you'd get used to us <laughs> if we were around every couple of weeks um, and you'd be like oh them again but yeah. if we randomly and without any warning disappear for three months and then come back, it's like a lovely, <laughs> a lovely happy surprise. A nice little surprise. Yeah. And who doesn't love that? Yeah. But we should probably remind everybody who we are. Um, yes. Yeah. This is History is Sexy, where we answer people's questions about history and tell them how it's sexy. Um, and I am Dr. Emma Southern, um, historian and writer of history things. And I am Janina Mathewson, writer of sometimes history-ish things, but mainly made up, <laughs> made up history things rather than the real ones. Yeah, um, it's somehow even more dystopian than the real world ones, quite often. <laughs> Which is quite an impressive feat at this particular point in time. It is. It is. Um, it's a skill that you have. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and we are back with the one that we promised you in February, which is. Um, Oh yeah, February wasn't that long ago. I know. It's Basically to... yesterday. Basically. It feels like it was yesterday. It feels it like does. we were recording and then I don't know, I fell asleep and woke up and literal months had passed. <laughs> um, I mean, to be fair, time has lost all meaning, so <laughs> saying that we're going to do something every two weeks doesn't actually bear any weight because <laughs> Who knows what, what is a day <laughs> anymore? Yeah. What is ten minutes? Um, so the question that we are answering this week is from Luke, um, and he has asked us, where does our interpretation of Victorians as prudish and highly conservative come from? Um, so we're looking at whether the Victorians were very prudish and what we think about them and where it came from. Yeah. Um, which is quite fun. Um, and I have at least, I would say, four soapboxes I have developed that I did not have prior to researching this episode. <laughs> I am excited about your soapboxes. But I have now oh. suddenly done So one of them, which is the most important one for right now at this moment, um, is that the idea of Victorians as prudish as conservative and as sexually repressed is very specifically a class-based um image and it is a an image of middle and upper middle class victorian people um Mm -hmm. and it is one that was developed specifically to exclude working class people basically because at the same time that you have this image of uh, women fainting if they see a chair leg 
You mm-hmm. also have um, Jack the Ripper's Whitehall and um, like that inner city London image that is in all the Jack the Ripper books. Um, and he's in like um, all that kind of neo-Victoriana where every single woman in them is a sex worker and there are tits falling out everywhere and yeah. everyone has syphilis. Jack the Ripper is maybe the most, the biggest canonical women's murder as titillation. Yeah, exactly. Like the beginning around, right? of, of that whole thing. Um, which and people are very, very resistant to um to not to kind of rejecting that idea. So I don't, have you read Harry Rubenfeld's Harry Rubenhold's um The Five? I have not. I don't think so, no. It's very good, and she's very good. It's a history of the five women that Jack the Ripper murdered. Um, mm-hmm. so I think I've got that somewhere, and I've never got around to reading it. It literally tells their lives, um, and she has unearthed like huge amounts of documentation about all five of them um, and mm-hmm. traced like where they came from, and one of them is like a Swedish immigrant and um, how they ended up in a place where Jack the Ripper could murder them. Um, mm-hmm. And the kind of core argument is it of it is that the majority of them, if not all of them, were not sex workers, um, mm-hmm. and that they were not murdered in the act of sex work, but they were murdered while they were sleeping. They were just homeless women who were sleeping, mm-hmm. um, or women who did not have permanent homes. Um, and there's been a really violent reaction from ripperologists pushing back really? on this they want them to be prostitutes that got killed so that they can continue to like be a bit titillated by <laughs> um, yeah and um yeah it's really surprising if you look at the the way they have responded to her book a lot of them have been very like how dare you say that they weren't sex workers and she's like because they probably weren't anyway it's very good um that's so like i mean i guess part of it is that there is always a a backlash when someone reveals something or uncovers something new or interprets something in a new way about history because we get so comfortable with the assumptions that we've made and the story of Jack the Ripper as a, a, a person who preyed on sex workers is so ingrained. So it's hard to like recontextualize an idea that set in your mind that well for that long, especially if you've made it your thing. But then yeah. there's also like, wh- <laughs> like what, why is are you so determined to like assume you know everything about your favorite thing? Don't you want to learn more? Don't you want to? Doesn't that then open up new avenues for like who, like psychologically he was and what this whole deal was all about? No, not because really. I think it's very easy just to say like, oh, he was prudish and he he didn't believe like he thought that he thought that prostitutes were evil and should be executed or, and so he killed them. Like that's a very simple black and white motivation but if it's just like here is someone who just killed vulnerable women women because they were on the street and available to him to kill yeah that's um, there's a lot more there's a, there are a lot more questions to be answered there yeah um and apparently some people don't want to um but yeah Fair. but the point of that digression was that um that was is the image that is portrayed of working class London and underclass kind of Britain as it being kind of rampant sex work and absolutely nobody having any restraint whatsoever. Whereas mm-hmm. the sexually repressed Victorian is a very middle class myth 
um, that was specifically developed by the Victorian middle classes as a kind of restraint is a and respectability is developed basically um mm-hmm. so the other soapbox that i'm going to get on very briefly but this is a long time soapbox uh-huh. <laughs> is that there is a very big difference between cultural attitudes and ideals and things that people aim for or things that people want and actual behaviors um and often when i'm reading things about the victorians and particularly about this period um you see people talking about cultural attitudes as expressed in writing and novels and self-help manuals and pamphlets and lectures and things Mm -hmm. as if they were um behavior and then pointing to behavior and saying, oh, well, they didn't act like they said they acted, basically. Um, yeah. And so there's a, now a whole swathe of uh, literature from the modern day, which is basically like, oh, actually, the Victorians bonked loads um, and therefore they were hypocrites um, because a lot right. of their writing does say like, oh, maybe you shouldn't be masturbating and then um then they have like manuals to how to have good sex or they have diaries so we have these diaries um and like sex surveys and things that women did where they write about (laughs) all of the sex they're having Um, yeah (laughs) and they're like oh my god they're such hypocrites (laughs) or uh, the men are writing about having sex um but it is very much the same as if you took like just a bunch of self-help manuals from today and TED yeah. Talks and then said like, oh, well, people of Anglo-American culture today spend all of that, get up at 4 a.m. and do their three pages of gratitude journaling and then <laughs> meditate and have a protein-rich carb low breakfast and then blah 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 whatever it is that all these people are always claiming that they do um and then you look at our actual diaries or our social media what we actually do at the time and find that we sleep until 10 eat a banana um dip yeah. in nutella and then kind of watch 16 hours of project runway on netflix <laughs> yeah it's like i feel like two things going on one of which is just taking a massive group of people as a monolith just because they happened to be alive at the same time yeah and the other is perennially failing to recognize that something being written down doesn't make it true yeah like we have daily proof of that you know with the the million articles there are every week about how cancel culture is running mad Next to evidence that no one has actually been cancelled. No one has like, ever been cancelled, yeah. No, no, it's, it's, <laughs> it's ridiculous. And, like, we see it all the time and we apply it to history. We apply it to what is happening now that we, we see something written down and we believe it to be true. And we're even worse when we look back at history. And it's just – it's an interesting – I don't know, example of how difficult it is for the human brain to hold in massive amounts of information at one time. Yes, so – what I'm going to do for this is um, talk about why a bit. Um, like, why does the myth of the prudish Victorian kind of 
come from and why does it stick around and then at the end I'm going to do the two kind of big myths about repressed Victorians um, mm-hmm. and where they come from um, so mostly the Victorians covered up their chair and piano legs because looking at them made them faint yeah. um, and then the very Vibrators were invented to cure women of hysteria. We should also briefly do probably We Are Not Amused because I feel like that's part of it. Okay, and We Are Not Amused. Uh, So we'll do those at the end. Uh, So everybody has something to look forward to. I've got, I've put this into numbers because I like a list. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. But so reason number one why the myth exists and persists. that Victorians were really repressed about sex and um, couldn't look at a leg is that they talked about it all the time and kept repeatedly saying quite a lot that sex was weird and bad and that people should stop. (laughs) (laughs) So reason number one is that it is partly true um, that Victorians were kind of repressed about sex. Um, or middle-class Victorians were kind of repressed about sex, um, both in America and in the UK. This is another thing about Victorians that is kind of lost in broad talking about them, which is that there is an American Victorian and a British Victorian, and um, they both think that the other is monstrously prudish. And over time, like in the mid 20th century, the American and the British Victorian idea has become collapsed into one, which is specifically focused on Britain. And like the American Victorian has disappeared. But they both think that the other is kind of prudish. But both of them talk about sex all the time, um, largely because there is this emergence of a literate middle class um Mm -hmm. out of the industrial revolution and the georgian period um there is this emergence of um a paternalistic middle class as well who were very very interested in the world around them um, and were very interested in social issues like housing and disease and prostitution and um overpopulation and um how to relate religion to daily life and um all of these issues of problems that they saw around them a lot of which they related back to sex somehow um so when you have when they're talking about housing um and housing crises in in cities um and they're looking at um how do you like they're talking about contraception they're talking about overpopulation that Mm -hmm. kind of thing there is also a genuine crisis with syphilis um, and venereal (laughs) disease um because of the rise of cities largely but um that means that people are talking about these things and they are not just talking about them in parlours or in um, big country mansions. They are in medical societies and writing in medical journals. They are mm-hmm. writing pamphlets and publishing them. They are writing novels and publishing them. They're putting them in newspapers. They're writing popular science books. Uh, all of these things are emerging at the same time. So this what is we have kind is- of the point in time where scholarly pursuits stop being quite such an elitist thing 
it's not just the sons of the gentry that are going to university. Yes, and not just the sons of gentry who are writing about philosophical issues that only affect the gentry. They are mm. writing, about, like, there is this paternalistic line that they should be involved in the work lives of other people mm. um, for better and for worse. <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of this means that they're writing it down. And so there is this very strong theme of anti-sensualism um, and a rejection of bodily pleasure um, which comes from various different places. Part of it, and this is my personal favourite part, is that um, it is a generational rejection of Georgian era decadence and aristocratic decadence. Yeah, uh, which you see all the time. Like every generation sort of swings wildly away from the one that came before, which is you yeah. see it happening currently where you like the, there are countless think pieces about Gen Z being a bit prudish and puritanical yeah, about puritines. sex. Puritans, um, because it's different than what the previous generation was doing, and you were you inclined to see what the harms of the previous generation more than the good. So you, yeah, sort of swing and plus wildly. It's not cool when your mom is like, "Come and do some MDMA with me in the park." Uh, yeah, <laughs> you're like, and we're I don't just not do creatures of like moderation we can't just like no one can ever just say look have the sex that you want to have and don't have the sex that you don't want to have and it's totally fine to say a virgin until you're married if that's what you want and it's totally fine to bone down all over town if that's what you want as long as it's what you want and not what you're doing because you're expected to and no one ever says it like that <laughs> like there's always a value <laughs> judgment on one or the other yeah which um, yeah. but every generation rejects their parents morality um, yeah. every single time um, and it's particularly funny like if you know anything about the monarchs if you listen to Rex Factor for example then one of my favourite things about Rex Factor is when they go through the Hanovers you get George I who is like this very upstanding man who is very kind of straight laced and moral and then George II who's like a massive rebellion against his father and then <laughs> George III who rebels against his father by being a like massive prude and then going a bit mad and then just being um like very straight laced and well behaved and then you get George the fourth who goes like massively the other direction and gets lost in his enormous trousers who has um, an era named after him that is defined by its six farces exactly um and then you have the victorians um who rebelled against that era of enormous trousers and massive gold things um, like <laughs> actually maybe that's not so bad they don't want to do mdma with their moms in the park they want to talk about um how actually maybe sex is bad <laughs> they want to have improvement societies and they want to improve society and think very seriously about things um yeah. and you also have um i am aware massive... also that we just did exactly what i said is dumb to do which is treat a group of people as a monolith because they all happened to live at the same time obviously there is still variation in all of this and people are living individual lives just want to put that disclaimer out there. oh but we're talking about the Victorians in general. So yeah. um, the other thing is that social science is basically invented during this period. Um, and in particular, there is the very, 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 very strong influence of Thomas Malthus, mm -hmm. um, who wrote an essay on the principle of population in 1798, which was massive. Um, just so so influential in terms of all kinds of social sciences. Mm -hmm. The Malthusian principle 
um, is an argument that um, population growth is exponential, whereas resource growth is linear. So populations will outstrip um, the resources and will all starve to death, basically. You get a Thanos unless they are checked. He specifically, as a he was a big old Christian, and he um, exclusively believed in abstinence and believed that everyone should be taught to be abstinent because then they um, won't have so much sex and they won't have as many children. Exactly. This um, is also when we get the rise of eugenics as well, I suppose. So it's like we yes, should have exactly. fewer children, and the children we sh- we do have should be better. Yes, basically. exactly. Mm. Um, and that is also very um, very influential, but. Um, Basically, um, that Malthusian principle was so, like, convinced everybody, and still is today, you'll still find people like Richard Attenborough doing um, neo-Malthusianism, which is that there are too many people, uh, mm-hmm. and that, but that what they specifically usually mean is too many brown people, um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, which is pretty much exclusively what Malthus meant, but, um, <laughs> and when people talk about overpopulation, that is usually what they mean, even if they don't know it. Yeah. Um, But that idea means that people are talking about population and population control a lot. Um, And what they're talking about very often is um, ways to stop people having children and stop people having sex and stop people from from being um, sensual in any Mm. way. Um, Then we have this... um, Related to that is this idea that of the middle class as a kind of ideal. They're not dissolute like the aristocracy um, and they're not completely irredeemable and ideally should be bred out of existence like the working classes. They are <laughs> the um, self-controlled, pure, hardworking, um kind of good strong moral virtuous modest middle class yeah um, the sensible core of society exactly and a, a core of that is um particularly female sexual purity but self-control and sexual purity becomes a really defining um middle class virtue which is focused on like domestic security and this nuclear family and you get lots of novels about this kind of thing and also self-help guides (laughs) um so you get lots of like Daniel Defoe, Jeremy Collier, Richard Steele, Samuel Richardson all have this develop this idea of sexual promiscuity as an aristocratic excess that should be uh, rejected um, and self-control as a an ideal. Um, and then you have all these self-help guides which are written largely by men and medical like popular medical textbooks as well. Um mm-hmm. And at the core, like the godfather of um, these textbooks, these guides, is a guy called William Acton, who Mm -hmm. is in his time a kind of relatively popular but not exactly outstanding like doctor who wrote popular medical guides. I'm trying to think of an example of what he would be like today. I don't know, like someone that you'd see on the telly. Like a Dr. Oz? Yeah, like a Dr. Oz, but 
I suppose, actually, no, having said that, the way he portrayed makes him seem like as dangerous as Dr. Oz, but yeah. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, But one, he wrote a bunch of books. His specific speciality was venereal disease. Mm -hmm. Um, And he wrote a bunch of books, one of which is called The Functions and Disorders of the Reproductive Organs in 1857. Mm -hmm. um, Compelling title. It's snappy. Um, I think it might have a longer title than that, to be honest. I think that might be the snappy version. Um, and he, which is entirely about male sexual organs um, and male sexual behaviour. Um, and it has two things about it which have made it like the touchstone for people who want to write about Victoria Prudishness. One... It argues quite forcefully that masturbation will kill you. Sure. Uh, (laughs) Because he was a great believer in closed system body theory, um, which argues that the body has like a finite amount of energy um, that you need to store up for good health. Um, Right. And masturbation uses up energy. And like, this is like, um, uh, what's it called? NoFap, that thing. Sure. Um, on Reddit, where they say that if you don't masturbate, then you store up all your masculine energy and you become more attractive and your acne <laughs> clears up. Yeah, which is why the, they invented cornflakes. That's why the no, exactly. that's why that's exactly why Reddit invented cornflakes. It is the exactly that, and it is part of this kind of anti-masturbation trend, which did happen um, in the Victorian period, where it was argued that masturbation will cause acne, it will cause you to like get cancer, it will cause everything to go wrong, and then you'll die young. Um, mm-hmm. So there's that, which is an issue, and he did argue quite forcefully against masturbation and kind of non-procreative sex. Um, and also that will give you syphilis. Um, sure. And then he has like two lines about women in the entire book Uh because he wasn't very interested in them but one of those lines is the majority of women happily for them are not very much troubled by sexual feelings of any kind (laughs) Um, which kind of went unnoticed for a very long time (laughs) because no one else was thinking about women either (laughs) well this was something that people did think um, and people did argue and does pop up in quite a lot of stuff. I mean, um, it's why there are laws against homosexual behaviour between men, but not so much between women, because people just yes. didn't believe that lesbians really existed because they didn't believe that women really were sexual beings. Exactly. Um, and this comes out of... Um, this is really interesting, actually. I enjoyed reading about this. So the notion of um, passionlessness... Um, <laughs> which is a term I think that was coined uh, by a woman called Nancy Cott, which is this idea that um, women have no sexual appetites, have no carnal desires, and are not driven by um, any kind of lust ever. Um, sure. And this comes out of a 18th century evangelical revival in America um combined with a um rejection of the french revolution sure and people um uh, particularly church people in both america and um the uk and britain writing um responses to the french revolution which they saw as kind of wildly dissonant um 
And it's interesting because the French Revolution happened because the revolutionaries saw the upper classes as wildly dissolute. It is. <laughs> um, and it developed this theology um, of women as um, purely or as largely spiritual beings um, <laughs> who are formed not for um, sexual weakness like men are, but <laughs> um, were formed for purity and glory and somewhere closer to God. Um, and that then over a generation like into the early and mid-Victorian period moved into scientific literature and so people who grew up with this idea from um, religious literature took it and then tried to find scientific reasons for it uh -huh. um, so they kind of took it as read and then were like okay um, <laughs> and um, so then they started to come up with attempted to come up with reasons for why women weren't as sexually interesting. Um, and then, and this is the really interesting bit, women's rights campaigners and like Victorian era feminists in America, particularly, but also in the UK, took it on as, took passionlessness on as a virtue. Yeah, it was um, one of the arguments for women getting the vote is that they could be a voice of moderation yeah. and reason and women and it proved that women were closer to god whereas men were disgusting and i mean that were only driven by their dicks um, <laughs> and were kind of weak and animal you know, women could tell themselves that they were above that they were more spiritually and and morally superior and yeah. so a lot of early feminist writing actually takes this on and there is also a lot of academic writing about how women particularly like middle class women obviously were able to use this idea that they were passionlessness and didn't want sex to not have to have sex with their husbands if they didn't want to mm. uh, <laughs> which meant that they could exert some power within their marriages um, yeah. and exert power over whether they wanted to have children or not um, which then over the generations, because every generation fucks up whatever their previous generation did somehow, um, men then took passionlessness and turned it into prudery and were like, well, then now women can't touch their own vaginas. Yeah. <laughs> because if you want to touch your own vagina, then you are a, you're not, you're a bad woman because yeah. women don't want sex. And if you want sex then, then you're, you're a fucked hussy. up somehow. Yeah, and now you're a nymphomaniac. And also we invented sexology and you're a nymphomaniac. Now we're going to put you in a prison. Yeah. Classic. <laughs> classic that classic gambit. Yeah. Uh, because the Victorians also invented sexology and invented heterosexuality and homosexuality and nymphomania and all other kinds of things. <laughs> because, and I can't emphasize this enough, they talked about sex all the time they also in doing so invented um no homo which i think is the real i mean it's not the real tragedy there's a lot of real <laughs> tragedies but um i think this is interesting because like the there have been there have been anti-sodomy laws in in britain at least dating back to henry the eighth and for a long time it was punishable by death but it was just the act of sodomy was was it and then in I think 1885, um, thanks to Puritan <laughs> puritanical campaigning, the um, 
the law changed so that it was about any homosexual act principally and also there didn't need to be a, a clear witness so this is why Oscar Wilde got sent to prison is because the evidence against you could just be being too affectionate in a letter that you were writing to another man so this is when it became very dangerous not just for men to be and to to be physically sexually intimate with each other but for them to give any reason to let people think that they were so even if like affectionate platonic intimacy was dangerous like that could get you arrested that could get you sent to jail and now you know 150 years later you still get men who can't have friendships yeah men have to tell each other that they hate each other in order to or like go on a stag do and and punch each other in the face in order to have some kind of platonic contact with another yeah. man <laughs> yeah and it's very sad it's very sad and it's the Victorians' fault. <laughs> they did invent that and it they sucks. Did, they really. did invent it. Which is also one of the reasons why it can be quite hard. Like, when you when you look back at history for queer stories, which obviously there are plenty of because there have always been plenty of queer people, but it can be quite hard to know what is evidence of a romantic relationship and what is evidence of a close friendship because it used to be... Like, men used to express more passionate, platonic love than they do now. So it all reads as romantic compared to how we are used to men communicating. It does. Um, and it makes things challenging when yeah. you're looking back. Um, but homosexuality as a concept um, was literally invented... Uh, by a guy called Westphal, uh, who's a psych Berlin psychiatrist, uh, who published an article um, in 1870 um, about quote unquote sexual inverts, um, and basically invented the concept that um, who you have sex with is your identity, um, and that it can be therefore changed and/or criminalised. Uh, <laughs> and then ten years later, heterosexuality was invented, essentially. Um, and it, that completely changed how we talk about sexual expression and how these conversations are had in terms of talking about sex being an action versus sex being an expression of a core identity. Mm. And um, people have been right about that for a long time. Um, I mean, Foucault is, you know still the own the person that everybody comes back to is history of sexuality um mm -hmm. but his Foucault's argument is actually that the Victorians were not repressed at all because all they did was talk about it and if they had been repressed like properly repressed then they wouldn't have talked about sex at all <laughs> um and but Victorians made sex a legitimate area for discussion in all kinds of fields mm. um and that's how they birthed us as the 20th and 21st century um which people have pushed back against a bit i think but i say i think they definitely have but um <laughs> they did start a way of talking about sex which had not previously um existed um and for better and for worse. But but that's the Victorians. So and they invented it because all they did was talk about it constantly all the time in a, a, just about every context that they possibly could. Yeah. Cuz rep repression and obsession go hand in hand, I think. Yeah. Like 
Having having grown <laughs> up in a in a pretty churchy environment, <laughs> repression, being repressed about sex means you are obsessed with sex. It, yeah, like, no one talks about sex more than religious people. No, like <laughs> everything is like sexy if you are really really frightened of it. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but then, so there is also a historiographical element um, to this. Uh, so going back to um, Acton, who, if you look up like any kind of Victorian sex stuff, Acton is always listed as like the exemplar of Victorian morality that women don't have sex and men shouldn't masturbate. Um, and there's been... And it's literally based on that one line, but it's because there is one guy called Stephen Marcus who kind of was one of the first people to write about, to start talking about the idea of um, Victorians as hypocrites, essentially, <laughs> in in academia anyway. There is this a massive generational shift, which I will come to in a minute. <laughs> um, and he found this Acton quote and basically was like, Acton is the true Victorian. He is the epitome of Victoriana. He is like the, this is what all Victorians thought about sex. Um, and he was so influential, Stephen Marcus, that everyone who has ever then written about Victoria sex has had to talk about that quote, basically. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. um, if you don't talk about that quote, then people were like, yeah, but what about William Acton? Right. Um and then that just spreads it further, essentially. <laughs> um, and it just goes on and on and on forever. Um, but, yeah, so there is that historiographical element um, where uh, the more that people try to disprove William Acton, because there's so many books, like Fern Riddell has written loads. Uh, Matthew Sweet wrote a book as well. There's tons of books that are like Victorians Undone, The Other Victorians, How Victorians Had Sex, A Victorian Guide to Sex, blah, blah, blah. They're like, mm. actually, Victorians fucking loved orgasms. Um, <laughs> as if that was ever a question. <laughs> um I literally read one article um, which was called Victorian Sexuality Can Historians Do It Better um, that was just, I mean I've not not read the word orgasmic as many times in a row <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, as I had in that article um, it was just, there was a lot there was like, just really as if, again, it was uh, to me it's never a question that the Victorians <laughs> didn't have all like it's not like we think or that anyone thinks that 100 120 years went on without anyone ever having an orgasm yeah <laughs> like and i don't know why you would feel the need to disprove that <laughs> uh, but people really do um and that's fine. <laughs> I, I mean, it's even even an individual person who is repressed about sex. The chances are that they have had that one person has had an orgasm at some point in their life. Yeah, um, yeah, probably, probably. <laughs> um, but yeah, so people really want to push back on 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 that acting thing um, by kind of trawling through all of the other guides and marriage manuals and diaries and there's this thing called the Mosha report um which i think was published posthumously but basically 
Uh, a doctor, a female doctor, polled a load of women over her career uh-huh. um, and got them to fill in forms about their sex life. Um, it's unclear how she chose them <laughs> because it's like over a 30-year period, she got 45 women to fill in a form, mm-hmm. which feels like she was picking them specifically. <laughs> it's like that doesn't feel like a random sample, but sure. <laughs> And they're all kind of middle-class, upper-middle-class women in America. Um, And she got them to fill in forms about their sex lives and basically was like, how often do you have sex? Um, How often do you have orgasms? Um, How satisfied are you with your sex life? They're all married. So, um, and do you think that sex is uh, important in your marriage? Blah, blah, blah. And basically most of them say yes. Um, Everything is, um, sex is important. Um, 35% of them say that they always have orgasms during sex blah 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 and people get very excited about this kind of thing mm-hmm. and are like oh my god Victorian women know what an orgasm is <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah again I don't think that even Acton was saying that oh yeah no one knew what an orgasm was he was saying that you shouldn't masturbate because it was bad, bad for you but um, but yeah but there is this that trend of passionlessness means that there is a strong historiographical desire to reimagine the Victorians over and over again as sexy people. Mm-hmm. Um, but but that... Okay, this is the, my last point, I think. Um, <laughs> which is that the pushback against Victorian quote-unquote prudishness starts in like 1918 <laughs> so uh, in the edwardian period um their children of the victorians basically immediately push back against their parents mm-hmm. um and specifically you get the lost generation who like every generation thinks it has since the beginning of time thinks that they discovered sex um, <laughs> and specifically thinks that they discovered being gay um and there is a guy called linton strachey who wrote a book called Eminent Victorians. And here's one of the Bloomsbury set, like mm-hmm. with Virginia Woolf and all of that, um, where everybody, what's Has- the thing that is supposedly said about them? They live in squares and f- fucking triangles and write in circles. <laughs> um, uh, so here's one of those. They think that they have invented the word semen. They're very excited about everything. Um, and they are... They developed this idea that Victorian is a pejorative term. Um, <laughs> and he writes this book called Eminent Victorians, which is an unflattering biographies of um, four, like, big, important Victorian figures. <laughs> like, uh, the headmaster of rugby school, who's called Thomas Arnold, um, who, and this is my favourite thing that he says about anybody in the entire book, he accuses them of having <laughs> legs shorter than they should have been. Uh, <laughs> Which I just think is really funny. <laughs> the thing is, I can like, see that. I can, I can see exactly what he means. It's like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, obviously, there's no length the leg should be, but it's it's, it's, it's evocative. It's really good. Um, but it's um, yeah. So Florence Nightingale is one of them. Uh, Thomas Arnold, uh, Cardinal Manning, who's a, a cardinal, obviously. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um and a uh, general general charles gordon um who is 
in the Crimean War. Um, <laughs> so he writes these biographies that are actively very, very, very unflattering. Mm-hmm. Um, and the whole point of them is to prove that the Victorians are a set of what he calls mouth bungled hypocrites. And he's um, chosen those four people expressly for that purpose, right? He's specifically yes. going for people who fit the the traits that he wants to say that everyone showed. Exactly. The book is enormously popular um, and he just completely assassinates these poor people (laughs) um, who would just live normal Victorian life. (laughs) One of whom is Florence Nightingale (laughs) and accuses them of terrible things like having legs shorter than they should be. Effectively set the like the nineteenth century or the twentieth century attitude towards the nineteenth century as um, presenting the whole era as being full of people who are buttoned up, repressed, miserable hypocrites who wouldn't even look at their own breasts, but would have sex in alleyways um, and have like do spankings in in chambers mm-hmm. um, and find it hilarious to laugh at all of these Victorians and this becomes very very popular to the extent that Edmund Goss wrote um, in the 40s for a considerable time past everyone must have noticed in private conversation a growing tendency to disparage and ridicule all things and aspects which can be defined as Victorian Um, and people like Virginia Woolf developed mid-Victorian as like an ultimate diss like <laughs> calling something mid-Victorian was the same as like calling it's it like calling someone a boomer right yeah exactly it's exactly the same as calling someone a boomer <laughs> um and it's very funny to imagine like the people of 1920 or uh, the 20s and 30s and 40s being like Okay, mid-Victorian. We are sexually liberated, <laughs> <laughs> enlightened people of the 30s. Yeah. Um, but basically that really fixed this idea um, immediately that the Victorians sucked, <laughs> um, which has only been reinforced repeatedly by the Victorians' own literature about themselves. <laughs> <laughs> But it is because they, like, these were, and this is what I'm going to come back to, which is that these were conversations that they were having in an intellectual space for the most part. Mm. And obviously that changes as the generations pass because the Victorian era is a good hundred years. Mm. Um, There's three generations-ish of Victorian people during that time, and each generation is different. So there, and there is also this American-European thing um where there are differences like the americans are very evangelical um where the europeans are less so because Mm. church going declines quite significantly um but there are changes so stuff which emerges at the beginning like this idea of passionlessness by the end of the victorian period had become twisted into something completely different and so people who were coming of age during the end of the victorian period the 1890s 1900s respond to the concept of passionlessness very differently to their grandmothers who responded to it as something that they could take on board as an empowering thing um but it had changed to being if you masturbate we'll put you in a psychiatric ward for the rest of your life Mm. (laughs) and so these conversations start at a high level and then move into um uh 
like active lived experience but for the most part they are something that people are talking about not actually enacting yeah um and it's not like you know as i say it's not like nobody had an orgasm for 100 years (laughs) (laughs) and that that line between culture and and activity and behavior is um an important one i think that you have to that people forget very easily yeah. Um, but yeah, but that's basically why we think the Victorians are prudes. One, they kept telling us they were. Um, and two, <laughs> their children laughed at them. I think it's worth talking briefly about Victoria herself, because I think that yes. the sort of popular image of her, which is from later and tends to be, you know, later in her life, um, contributes to that because she looks kind of grumpy and she's wearing black because she stayed in mourning from the point that her husband, Prince Albert, died until her death. Um so she she did she never left mourning, um, and so we have and because of the the myth about her saying responding to someone saying making a joke at court with we are not amused, and I think that that contributes to the overall idea as well. And all of that is is basic. I mean, it's true that she stayed in mourning and she looked a bit grumpy as an old woman, but um, she was a horn dog. We have so much evidence of her being a horn dog because she wrote, and you can get like Rex Factor when they do their little season on Victoria, read a lot of her diaries. So um, I recommend yes. listening to that. They read a lot. <laughs> she Alex wrote 3,000 words a day of personal diary, <laughs> which is why I think, which is why she's such a struggle for Ali because I don't think there's a person alive who has enough <laughs> material for 3,000 words a day on their life. We're, we're all going to come across as boring. Um, in that. But she like she literally talks about how much, like the morning after her wedding, she writes about how great sex was. And when she is told by a doctor that she has to stop having children because another baby could kill her, she says in her diary, I hope he doesn't expect me to stop having sex. Essentially, like I'm paraphrasing, obviously, she didn't write like that. But, um, she also like laughed at fart- people farting in court. You know, she had a sense of humor. Yeah. She was, by all accounts, a jolly wee wench. Um, <laughs> and I and that's not the, the image of her. That I, I was reading some letters of hers that she wrote to her daughter after her daughter went off to get married um, mm-hmm. in Germany. Um, and she, she hated being pregnant and she hated having babies. Um, but she wrote quite a lot of letters about how much she explicitly disliked her youngest child. <laughs> <laughs> Which I find really funny. <laughs> um, and she's like, I could not help but hear it in Lucille Blue's voice. This... <laughs> I don't care for Job. Yeah, well, okay. So there's this letter that she writes to her daughter, Victoria, who she says, who has just had her first baby and is delighted and has written these letters about how happy she is that she's had this baby. Mm-hmm. Um, and she wrote back and said, I never cared for you anywhere near as much as you seem to care about the baby. I cared much more for the younger ones, except perhaps Leopold. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, and then she's got all these ones about Leopold is very ugly. I think he is uglier than he used to be. He's eight. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Leopold. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, it's very funny. An ugly baby is a very nasty object and the prettiest is frightful when undressed. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's an aside, though. Um, yeah. 
Yes, okay. We don't actually know if Victoria said we are not amused. Her granddaughter claims that she never said it. Like, Victoria told her granddaughter that she'd never said it because the myth was already circulating by this point. But there are, like, multiple stories that are all a bit different, some of which are just, like, someone told a joke she didn't like and she said it to be quelling. And some say that, you know, she said... It's not the royal we, it's the we in the room, because what she was saying was, can you not see that no one is laughing at your terrible jokes? Please stop making them. Um, But from her own mouth to her granddaughter, she never said it. It (laughs) Just just didn't happen. It doesn't surprise me at all. None of it ever happened. None Um, of it ever happened. Two other things that never happened um, was... So... The vibrator, the story goes, and you'll find this everywhere, to the extent that I found out that there is a Hugh Dancy and Maggie Gyllenhaal film Yeah. Uh, about the invention of the vibrator. Yeah. Um, I think it's based which, on a play. The play comes around every, every so often as well. Um, yeah, uh, which claims that the um, Victorian doctor called Mortimer Granville, which is a great name, um invented the vibrator because Victorian doctors um, were spending so much of their time manipulating women to orgasm uh, slash, uh, quote, unquote, hysterical paroxysm um, (laughs) in order to cure them of hysteria that their hands were getting tired. So he invented a machine in order to do it. Um, And if you Google, you'll find it absolutely everywhere. Um, Which Fern Riddell, God bless her, um, and I understand her desire to end this, but also <laughs> she, you are railing against the sea. <laughs> I feel this way about Caligula and his horse, so I understand. But she has dedicated her life so far to trying to convince people that this did not happen because it did not happen. Um, <laughs> Dr. Granville invented a massage device for men's pain. Um, which may or may not have been used by couples in the same way that, like, what they called Hitachi, yeah, called a neck massager. uh, Yeah, allegedly a neck massager, a thing that no human has ever used it for. Um, (laughs) It it, it may well be that this is what couples and women used it for, but it was technically invented just in order to help people with their, like, leg pain. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And she is furious about this and she would like everybody to know that um, the Victorians talked about orgasms all the time, which, to be fair, they absolutely did. Um, But that's not particularly amusing. It's kind of unclear how that um, became a myth, really. Um, It's just fun, isn't it? It's just fun if it's true. It is. um, But I could not find anyone who had like described how it became a myth and I didn't have time to explore it and go back all myself so uh, but I did find where the piano legs thing comes from Um, Mm -hmm. so the story goes with piano legs is that uh, middle class upper class uh, Victorians would cover up piano legs in order to prevent indecency um, and to protect young women from having to even ever think about a leg Um, And this specifically comes from a book called The Diaries from America by a a British uh, guy called Frederick Marriott, um, who travelled around America in the 1830s. And two anecdotes occurred, um, which he recorded with great credulity, frankly. Uh (laughs) Um, The first is he is on a trip around Niagara Falls with a young lady, um, 
and she tripped over and banged her leg and he asked her if her leg was okay um and she was shocked into silence um <laughs> by him saying the word leg uh, <laughs> uh and she said that the word leg was never mentioned before ladies in america um and that it was necessary to say limb uh, <laughs> one should only ever say limb of a table or limb of a piano fork. Um, <laughs> and he apologised for his want of refinement, which was attributable to my having been accustomed only to English society. Um, and added that such articles must occasionally be referred to even in the most polite circles of America. And she said, absolutely not. And she would shock everyone in the company if in America you said the word leg. <laughs> Shortly after this, uh, he visited a seminary for young ladies um, in which he saw that they had um, little frilly things on covering the legs of their pianos. And he <laughs> asked what that was about. And someone told him that they covered up the legs in order to um, preserve the utmost purity of the ideas of the ladies under her charge and had dressed <laughs> all four legs in modest little trousers. <laughs> And he very kind of credulously wrote these things down um, and published his book. And he thought it was hilarious that the Americans were so prudish. Um, and they thought, like, the English basically saw American middle classes as puritanical weirdos. Um, and it kind of went round British society as a hilarious joke. Um, <laughs> and people wrote, like, songs about it. And people put it in novels. There's a bit in Martin Chuzzlewit. Um, where someone says the naked eye to a um, an American girl and she can't speak because she's so shocked by the word naked. <laughs> uh, um, and it just becomes like this hilarious joke that Americans are so prudish that um, you will, if you say the word leg, they'll faint. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it, because it had been published in England, it then went around the Americans <laughs> as a thing that, British people think <laughs> and it's in British books and they think if you say the word naked eye because it's in Dickens to a lady then she'll faint and they didn't get that it was a joke on the Americans so it kind of went around both sides mm-hmm. and then in the 1940s um, in the context of talking about this a uh, kind of eminent Victorians um, where the Victorians really prudes um a, a historian used it on the radio and said that there was a culture of sex and that meant that they covered up their piano legs and that kind of kick-started it all over again into a <laughs> thing that all Victorians did. Um, Matthew Sweet, in his book, which is Inventing the Victorians, which is very good, um, said basically he thinks that the whole thing was just a hoax, that they were just taking the piss out of the English guy. <laughs> Just seeing how much they could get him to believe. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And the um and that he took it seriously and that it just got a bit out of control. In the same way, it reminds me of um there's this bit in Herodotus's histories, like and he is kind of notorious for writing down anything that anyone tells him. Mm-hmm. And at one point he goes to Egypt and asks what the hieroglyphs on the side of the pyramids mean. And someone tells him that it is just a list of rations. Um, and mm-hmm. that everybody got three carrots and a turnip a day. And so he <laughs> writes that down. 
Um, which is obviously a joke that he took very seriously <laughs> um, and survived. And it just, it seems like someone was trying to take the piss out of him, possibly because they thought that English people were very prudish or possibly just <laughs> he met one very prudish person. Yeah. Um, but the people put things on piano legs just because Victorians had lots of money and put frills on everything, basically. Yeah, they liked um, a doily. Yeah, exactly. It's just a leg doily. Uh, but yeah, so it's a hoax that went horribly wrong. <laughs> or horribly um, right, depending on how you look at it. horribly right. Um, but I think what we can learn from that is that the Victorians were kind of weird about sex, but uh, none of the things you think happened actually happened. Yeah. 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 That's a good place. Yeah. That's a, a good place to end up, I think. <laughs> History is complicated. People have always the- been weird and fucked up, but... That doesn't mean yeah, all the stories are true. And I think we've learned that. And I think we've learned that every generation will reject its parents. Uh-huh. <laughs> Eventually. Eventually. Um, yeah. Uh, and it, now our children are rejecting us. Yeah. And they won't do MDMA with us in a park. It's a shame. I know. And then their children will do MDMA in the park and they'll be or whatever drugs have been invented in 20 years. Yeah. Yeah, and on and on it will go until the inevitable heat death of the universe. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. All right, Janina, what are we talking about next time? Um, We are talking about Vikings next time. Yeah. Uh, We have a few questions about Vikings from Luca Blumenthal, um, which can best be summed up by, what's the deal with Vikings? Yeah. So we're going to summarize it to what's the deal with Vikings. <laughs> Where do they come from? Where did they go? <laughs> um, what's their whole thing? Is the Northman real? Yeah. Um, yeah. One of those questions is, do you like, what's it called? Assassin's Creed Valhalla? Yeah. Um, yes. I, and to, I'm going to give you a spoiler. Yeah, yes, I do. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Janina but, does. I, I, haven't, I haven't finished it because it's enormous. Yeah. Um, um I can't play any three-dimensional video games because Mm. they make me vomit. So (laughs) I only play ones for children. (laughs) (laughs) But until next time, Janina, uh, which will come in a couple of weeks, or probably it's not a few months. uh, We shouldn't make make promises. We're not reliable people. (laughs) It will probably come in some time. We'll do our best. Um, You can find us at historyofsexy.com where you can find links to the show notes and ways to support us if you would like to do that, which we always appreciate. Um, and, and thank you very much to everybody who has continued to support us during our quiet times. <laughs> appreciate you very much. Um, and every time I get a little email, I say thank you very much to my phone. So <laughs> you're appreciated <laughs> in my heart. That's beautiful. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> um yeah so you can find us there and until next time bye Janina bye <laughs>